Welcome to the CTO Podcast, an I Hear Everything production. This podcast is dedicated to exploring the challenges and opportunities facing today's chief technology officers. Looking to discover what it takes to succeed as a CTO? Then sit back and relax as we explore the fascinating evolution of the world of technology leadership. Here's the host of the CTO podcast, the founder of Seven CTOs, Etienne de Bruin. Hey, welcome to the CTO podcast. I'm your host and the founder of Seven CTOs, Etienne de Bruin. Joining us is Rob Hirschfeld, who is the CEO and founder at RackN, which is an Austin-based startup that develops software to help automate data centers, which they call Digital Rebar. This platform helps connect all the different pieces and tools that people use to manage infrastructure into workflow pipelines through seamless multi-component automation across the different pieces and parts needed to bring up IT systems, platforms, and applications. And today, Rob and I are going to discuss the role of DevOps in building startups. So here's my conversation with Rob Hirschfeld, the CEO and founder at RackN. Rob. Welcome. Yitin, thank you very much for having me on. This is a pleasure. And oh my goodness, DevOps and startups, quite a combination. Aren't they mutually exclusive? <laughs> I think in a lot of cases, the historical role of DevOps as a way for enterprise to bridge developers and operations and take system thinking into the mix. Yes, I, you could look at it if you see it as an enterprise thing. If you look at it as a systems thinking approach to building infrastructure and creating pipelines and automation, then no, actually, I think startups more desperately than any other company need to think about having DevOps and DevOps approaches. I love the idea of systems thinking applied to DevOps. Do you want to tell me a bit more about that? Yeah, sure. And this comes back, I think the first time when I was really getting into DevOps, when it was coming about, at that point in my career, I was really excited about Lean, about MVP. So if you're thinking about startups, there's a great book by Eric Ries called The Lean Startup that talks about minimal viable products, really embraces agile methodologies and doing sort of sprint-based work, very user-driven test-based work. All of those things are core, right? DevOps is built on the principles. I was just talking to John Willis, the principles of Deming and just-in-time manufacture and things like that. And so those concepts for startups are lifeblood for startups. And so the, those concepts really tie together very closely. So let's unpack that a little bit. What does DevOps mean? What does it mean to you? I know you formed, you started RackN, so maybe there's some of your own origin story in that, but let's unpack that a little bit. Oh, I'd be happy to do that. And the origin stories for RackN can definitely help shed some light. For me, DevOps really means it's a process and approach. It's a way of thinking about how infrastructure is managed. And I come from an infrastructure side. So my background is very much on the infrastructure pieces, right? I write software for a living. That's what RackN does, but it's all focused on how do we control and manage infrastructure better? So when I hear DevOps, to me, it's very tied into how are we running infrastructure? How are we operating infrastructure? How do we create automation? Sometimes I'm, when I'm lazy, I'll use DevOps as a synonym for automation, but I don't mm. think that really does it justice 
for what we're trying to accomplish, right? Because the goal for automation is to be able to create this end-to-end -end flow through your systems. If you're just writing a script that, you know, does one thing, it doesn't really, it's not really automation, that's scripting. So automation to me, when we're looking at this, is much more of building that end-to-end -end process. What we're trying to do is not exactly eliminate people from the mix. We're trying to eliminate people from the mix. or <laughs> really free them into doing things that require people. The idea, and this is core for RackN, right? People are like, oh, are people going to use your product? And they're like, in, in a real good use case scenario, when you're automating infrastructure, you're plugging things together and people don't get involved in all those steps, right? If you're building great automation, then this is where DevOps, I think, is really the key. You're starting from the, the people producing code or security criteria or product requirements, right? All of those things flow into the system. And then there's a automated process that produces and publishes your code at the end of it. You don't want people to have to be involved in that day-to-day -day flow. The less they're involved, the faster that pipeline goes, the better it gets. That doesn't mean that people aren't involved. They're very involved, especially because you want to keep improving and adding to and expanding it. And this might be a good place for the our, sort of the Rackin origin story if you want, or if you had a different question. No, go for it. Tell me about Rackin. The founding team for Rackin was all working together in Dell in the days when cloud was just beginning. So very early OpenStack, Hadoop, these, this sort of idea that we were going to start building big infrastructures and automating and VMware was sort of breaking into bigger footprints and things like that. And Amazon was just coming into the fore. Our team at Dell was charged with literally shipping clouds from the factory. So the vision was that you would do all that install work, make it all happen in the factory, that you ship a rack, you turn on the rack and you'd have a cloud. And that's a silly idea. It's actually not really feasible to do that because each person, each customer's data center was different and different in useful ways. So the idea that I was just going to ship cookie cutter things to everybody doesn't really have a lot of utility. We found that out pretty quickly. And then we built automation because that meant that we had to ship raw materials to customers and then use automation to build the cloud on site instead. Turns out that was much more powerful because that meant they could rebuild clouds on site, which everybody got excited about. But what happened is that Rackend built the team for the founding team for Rackend built that. And we would go and deploy at customer sites. We got to a point where we were doing one every other week. And we would show up, servers would show up, they'd get racked. We'd plug in the USB drives and start the automation building the server. And every time we'd come back from a customer, we'd improve it a little bit and make the automation better. We learned something. By the time we got to that 10th customer, we said, we have really made things better. And there were new versions of OpenStack, new versions of Linux, new versions of the Dell BIOS, like whole bunch of stuff had changed. And we're like, this is fantastic. We went back to customer number one and they couldn't take any of our changes. We hadn't built the automation in a way, and this was all based on Chef and a whole bunch of scripting and pieces like that. The automation wasn't designed like software where you could actually take a patch and upgrade it and change the composition. And for us as software people, that was a real fail. It was very frustrating for us. That would mean that we had to do a consulting job, send somebody back to upgrade, patch, fix each one of these customers. So instead of having 
one system deployed 10 times, we had 10 systems. And that, if you're a DevOps thinker or a software person, that's wrong. What we <laughs> wanted to do, the community drivers that we had were entirely around how do we make it so that we can do this work once and then share it and collaborate with it. So that way, if we actually improve it or we, if somebody changes, this happens all the time, that an operating system changes or something, some patch has to be distributed, you have to be able to send that patch out to everybody. And automation hasn't been built like that. Uh, and that is what Rackin set out to fix. It sounds really simple. It's, oh, wait, you just want to have automation that's software and acts like software. But fundamentally, that's how we look at this problem. And when you think about it, applying it to DevOps, that means that when you're building on somebody else's automation, you can actually share your improvements back to them. You can get the benefits of their improvements over time. It's a transformative change. It is interesting to hear you interchange the word DevOps and automation. I do. I do. Yes. No. <laughs> so walk me through walk me through a startup that is building some sort of web or mobile app. It has some this quintessential backend mm -hmm. components, the database. It, it wants to host either at Azure based on whichever company is throwing credits at them. You're rushing to find minimum viable product. You're in that scramble, you're maybe you're blowing through the first two, three million dollars in funding. What is the role of DevOps for that company? Oh boy. And this is always the trade-off with Agile and MVPs. It's just how MVP and minimal is your initial setup. And I think one of the things that, that you're saying, and I agree with, is that when you're trying to figure out what your core-based product is, you can run into a trap of spending too much time building the perfect build systems and pieces like that. And the challenge for any startup is to not confuse building their technology stack with getting product viability fit. And so I one agree. of the things that I think people tend to do with MVP is they actually build more product than they need to get to their MVP. And they spend a lot of time building something up. Once you start building the process up, I'll give you a good example from RackN. Once you start building that process up, it's incredibly hard to go back and then add in the discipline that you'd wish you'd had from a DevOps mm, perspective. The, that is the catch-22. So one of the things that w we did for RackN, uh, in the middle of our journey, we're a nine-year-old company now, halfway through, we actually stopped development of our third generation and then reset with version a new version of the software. Completely fresh rewrite which business-wise was very hard. <laughs> That's a whole other story. But one of the things that the team did when they, re, when they restarted was they started with unit tests. And they insisted that we would maintain, and we still maintain, I think it's a 70, 80% unit test rate on the software. And so we were building this new generation of the product. Super, I'm super anxious to have us in the field and making things go. But the team would, would went slower because they knew the importance of putting those unit tests in, building the test framework, making sure that everything we built had that those componentry in it. And this is the balance. That took that slowed us down. It took us longer to get those prototypes out. That first version involved more engineering cycles because we needed to do that work. And from a business perspective, burning funds, like you were describing, that's hard. 
right? And at that point, because we'd been in business, we knew what our customers wanted. We had a lot of feedback that we were building the right thing, that our MV, that this was past MVP. And for us, nobody wants a MVP data center product. This is part of the aha for me as I was always trying to do MVPs. When you're building something that needs to run people's production data centers for us, but I, I think a lot of products are like this. When your people start depending on your product, they don't want it to be an MVP. That DevOps discipline of building CI/CD systems and testing and security checks and all those pieces. When you start selling a product to somebody, you want the confidence that those things, those checks are there. Yeah, my good, my, my good friend, Aaron Contorer would always tell me, you should build for optimism and scale and optimistically mm. create these systems that yes, they are going to scale. And why not just do those build systems right from the get-go? There's a very careful balance because I look at, and I actually gave a talk at SRECon in 2022 about this. I actually have a graph showing the inflection points where we have had to come back and take, and our CTO, Greg Althaus, is really good at, at, at finding these balance points. If you looked at the product we have today, we have a much more scalable database with HA capability and a whole bunch of locking systems and tables. None of that was in the first two years of the product. And it took a significant amount of engineering to put that into the product. But if we had done that when we were first doing this, gener this new generation, if we had done that first, we would never have shipped. That's a second system problem. So you do have to be careful that you don't let building for your scale <clears throat> targets interfere with building sufficient scale because you really do, oh my God, it's, this is not anything to do with DevOps. It's just general architecture. If you solve for all of your future problems, you might never have those future problems. And it's very hard to no. know where, what those future problems are going to be. Yeah. Uh, sp sp speaking about goals, goals yeah. law on systems thinking, basically no, any complex system that works inevitably was built on a simple system that worked. And then conversely, any complex system that was designed to be complex from the onset fails and requires that you start from scratch. I love that. And that's actually what happened in our generational design. Our third generation product was built to, we built a directed graph into it on day one because we had all this complexity that we knew we had to solve for. And we looked at that and it was very hard to use. It was very hard to create repeatedly. Those were really serious problems. The flip side, when we restarted, we literally did exactly what you're describing. We said, look, we're just going to build the most basic, simple system to accomplish the task. And then we'll add incrementally to that. And that has been a much better design. One thing I will note that's been really helpful about having all those tests is our team is fanatical about backwards compatibility on our APIs mm -hmm. to the point where people who would use using our very latest UX could actually run that UX against our very earliest versions of the product. So four years old, long for five years old version of the product would still work because the APIs have such high fidelity going forward. And we have a whole bunch of defensive techniques around that and things like that. But one of the things that's been really important to us, because we had those tests and were able to validate it, is protecting the APIs. And that means that we have customers who are using older versions of the product 
they're listening, I sure hope they they would upgrade because there's a whole bunch of features they would get. But the APIs are consistent and repeatable. Mm. So they get a lot of benefit, right? It's, it's been very durable. Our product has been very durable because of that investment in the DevOps methodology and building it. What is the most simple build system or automation, as you say, you think that startups should have? There's the very minimum thing that you do that is the simple system that works. What is that? Oh, boy. As a minimum, I think that you should have a gated review get process, minimum. I think that build process should build and check to be able to run your build scripts and build automation on every commit or really every pull request is sufficient. And I think that should be able to run as a minimum, a linting, some degree of system checks, some degree of capability checks, and ideally whatever security systems, the language that you're using incorporates as a base. I love that. So very minimum, a review process a deployment scripts that run on a merge or some sort of git action commit action something about what was the third one that was linting. something linting linting yeah. and and then something about security yes very cool that wraps up this episode of the CTO podcast thanks to Rob Hirschfeld CEO and founder at RackN for joining us in part 2 of this interview which we'll publish tomorrow Rob and I are going to discuss how CTOs should rely on automation infrastructure. If you can't wait until our next episode and would like to learn more about Rob, you can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes. You can contact him on Twitter, where his handle is Z-E-H-I-C-L-E, or visit his company website at rackn.com. Just one link in our show notes I want to tell you about. If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, head over to ctopod.com where we have summaries of all our episodes and contact information for our guests. And if you want to share your stories of technical strategy and leadership in the C-suite, you can apply to be a guest speaker on the CTO podcast. Of course, you can always reach out on social media. Our handle is at 7CTOS on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can contact me directly. My handle is at Ed DeBruin, E-T-D-E-B-R-U-I-N. If you haven't subscribed yet and want a steady stream of CTO brilliance in your podcast feed, we're publishing multiple episodes each week. So hit that subscribe button in your podcast app and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow. Okay, that's all for today. But until next time, remember that if things aren't breaking, your company isn't growing. <laughs>